all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. We'll stop our reading there. And it, this is a little interesting that I went on through to verse 9, because this verse 9 actually begins another division within this second chapter of the, uh, of the letter. However, I wanted to provide verse 9 with the remaining verses of our text, verses 5 through 8, which make up this particular portion of the division, the second division, then third division, verse 9 and following. And I wanted to include verse 9 for the sake of the contrast that is being made between the two divisions. And so I wanted us to, to begin to look into that this evening uh, as we look at this second division of chapter 2. The writer of Hebrews, as you are aware, emphasizes that Jesus is better than the angels in chapter 1 and the first four verses of chapter 2 specifically. And this introduction of the truth of the superiority of Jesus Christ over the angels, as has been emphasized in these first two chapters thus far, lays the foundation for the explanation of how Jesus is better than all the Old Testament types and shadows which reflected him or pointed towards him. Jesus Christ, as we've seen over the past weeks of our study thus far, and when I say we've seen, I've introduced this to you based upon the uh, statement that Jesus is better than the angels, and so that leads us, that lays the groundwork and leads us into the teaching we will find in these areas that Christ is better than the angels, the highest of created beings, as I've mentioned. Christ is a better high priest, representing man to God. Uh, Christ is a better prophet, representing God to man. Christ is a better atonement or sacrifice offered by God on our behalf. Christ is a better mediator of a better covenant made between God the Father and God the Son. And Christ provides a better hope through his better ministry, which is built upon better promises, as the book of Hebrews tells us. So we're going to continue to see this unfold, and more as well, as we study through the book of Hebrews. However, I want to just remind you of these truths, because Christ is better than the angels is just the opening statement, if you will, of the writer concerning the superiority of Christ. Now, based on the uh, superiority of the way God has communicated with man, in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 specifically, and the truth that Jesus is better than the angels, the other messengers of God, the writer of Hebrews then states in chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. Now, we've already studied this passage, but again, I want to just kind of guide us into the verses in chapter 2, leading us up to verse 5 as we'll continue our study this evening. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Therefore, now, for this reason or for this cause is what this means. He says we ought, it is necessary. It's not just saying it's something we should do, but this is a necessity. To, pay a, to give is to pay attention or give attention. More earnest is abundantly or much more. The word heed is to take care or pay attention to. Should let, this verb phrase is in the active voice, indicating that it is an action of the subject of the verb, which in this verse is we. And then the word slip is drift away. So letting them slip is not simply an exhortation, as it may appear to face value as we read the text. It's not merely an exhortation to try to remember these truths. It's not saying that. But rather, it is a charge for the reader to not drift away from such truths. So to put it all together, we could literally read it as such. For this reason, or for this cause, it is necessary to give more attention to these truths that the reader does not drift away from said truths. So it's not letting the truth slip away, it's us drifting from them. We are to be rooted and grounded, giving our attention to these truths. That Christ is better, God has spoken in a superior manner to man through 
the, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And even we, we go on and see in the following verses, verse 2, for instance, for if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, and we'll continue in a moment, but here he's making the statement that whatever the message was, when it was God who gave the message and sent the message, it was always a steadfast message, or it was always proven to be true and valid. And then he says, if those who were under the law were held accountable before God, then how much more so will those who have been provided such grace by God in Christ be held accountable before God? He goes on in verse 3 to say, how shall we escape? So if, we, if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, verse 2, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, meaning that when the word and the message of God was given to the people by his messengers and then prophets and so on. He says this in chapter 1, if you recall, when he speaks about God in, in diverse time and, or in, in sundry times in diverse manner, spake unto us by the prophets and the fathers by the prophets, but in these last days has spoken to us by his son. And so he's saying that Christ in the manner which God has spoken is far superior to that which he had previously spoken, the manner in which he had spoken to man and communicated to man. And then he is saying that if those angels, if the messengers that God had sent, because angel means messenger. So if the messengers God had sent, if the message he sent through them was disregarded or disobeyed, then all the transgressions, all of those who neglected such a message, that there was a, there was a, a just recompense of reward handed down to them. So then verse 3 continues, Then how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. So here he's saying, how shall we escape if we neglect? Now again, it's interesting, because he does not say, how shall we escape if we reject? But he's saying, if we neglect so great salvation. And if men who refuse to heed God speaking through his prophets, through the messengers, throughout the Old Testament and such, and his law, if they did not escape God's judgment, then how much more so will those who neglect his son be righteously judged by the Lord? And we are to give attention as the writer exhorts to this great salvation, we are to give attention to this great salvation, lest we drift from living in the truth of such grace. The Hebrew writer further expounded upon this truth in the latter chapters of the epistle. And I don't want to spend time to read all of these again, but in Hebrews 10, 28 and 29, we see this, and also Hebrews 12, 24 and 25. So in the latter chapters of this epistle, we see the writer alludes to such statements as he is introducing here within this portion of the text in chapter 2. Verse 4, he goes on to say, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. So how shall you escape if you neglect so great salvation whenever those who received the message of God through other messengers, angels, through the law, through whatever means God communicated it, how is it that we would escape if we neglect the message he has sent through his Son which is Christ himself being that message, if they receive just recompense and reward for their rejection, for their disobedience, for their transgression against such truth. For God bore witness, it says, both with signs and wonders and diverse miracles, different types and manifold miracles and gifts of the Holy, Holy Ghost, meaning gifts, meaning that God has given to men severally as he will the gifts of the Spirit. And this was the evidence of God's working and the evidence of this great salvation being worked out through individuals as his church was equipped and gifted for the purpose of edification and ministry one to another. And he says, according to his own will, and, and script that again testifies to what uh, Paul writes in Scripture when he says that God hath given uh, to every man a gift of the Spirit. He's divided severally as he will 
according to his will to every man the gift of the Spirit. So the gifts of the Spirit are given uh, individually by the Holy Spirit. We are gifted differently for the purpose of the edifying or edification of the body of Christ. And so this, again, is alluding to that truth. So the Lord validated the witnesses of the gospel of Jesus with the sign gifts, power to perform miracles, as did the Lord, and gifts of the Holy Spirit as he willed, according to his will and design. And as I mentioned before, the long ending of Mark's gospel record testifies of this as well in Mark 16, 20. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following, amen. And so we see here that up to this point, again, the writer is emphasizing the truth that Christ is better. God has spoken in a superior manner, his truth and his message through his son. And so verses five through eight, which makes up the second division of this chapter, we find as we consider these verses, we also are going to look at verse 9, as I mentioned, which is the beginning of the third division of the chapter, but we're including it within the second one for the sake of the contrast. And as we examine and consider the first verse of the third division within the chapter, meaning verse 9, and the writer we find emphasizes the, the, the distinction between man who failed in his purpose, God-given purpose that is, and Jesus Christ, who is faithful to the purpose of the Father. And so this contrast is made, this distinction is made between the second and third division of this chapter. And the distinction begins in verse 5. Notice what he says. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak. Here we see the writer once again alludes to the truth, again, that Christ, of course, is better than the angels, but also that God has given man a dominion, over his creation. And we know that's true from the time of the Garden of Eden. It is Christ who is preeminent over all things, not the angels. And Jesus did not become an angel. He is the angel of God, meaning the messenger of God, that in that context, not a created being. But he is the messenger of God because the message is ultimately provided for us and given through the Lord Jesus Christ by his son, the Lord Jesus. However, he was not manifested in the flesh as an angel as a heavenly being, but he came in the form of a man in the flesh. And there's a reason for that, of course, obviously. We see that it is Christ who then is preeminent over all things, not angels. Colossians 1, 16 through 18, you should be familiar with these verses, but Paul wrote, for by him, Jesus, were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. The issue is not that the word which God has spoken is better, necessarily. The message has always been the same, but rather that how he has spoken through his and by his son, the Lord Jesus, is better. He is before and above all. Christ rules over his creation, and everything that is, only exists because Christ created it and he alone sustains it. Look back at chapter 1, if you will, just for a moment, in verse 1. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. And here again, now he's showing us the preeminence of Christ here, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than 
they. Here you find where, of course, Christ is exalted above all the created beings. He is not created. He is God in the flesh, manifested in the flesh. So he is above all, before all, preeminent and superior to all. But then let's continue in verses 6 through 8. But one in a certain place testified, saying, talking about the Old Testament, of course, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. This is a quote from a psalm which David wrote. In Psalm 8, verses 3 through 9, let me read them for you. David wrote, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Now let's understand what David is saying here. He's saying, When I step back and consider all the mighty works of your hand in creation. Now, here's, a, here's something interesting. Those very mighty works of creation, all that God created, God did not create uh, man for the world. Now, the world was created first. We understand that he created man to inhabit the world, but God created the world for man to inhabit and to use and to benefit from and to be a steward over. And so in doing so, he is saying, David stepping back, looking at creation and going, I, I marvel at your creative genius. And I marvel at your creative power and works. And in light of all that God has created, David then asks the question, verse 4 of Psalm 8, What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands, and put, hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the sea, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Here David is saying, you gave man dominion over your entire creation. All things are under his feet. Man, as created by God, was the pinnacle of the creative work of God. Man was made in the image of God. And this is important for us to remember all the time. And it's something I have to be mindful of, you need to be mindful of, and that is that all of creation, all of mankind, all of humanity is, has been created or procreated in the image of God, but it is a marred image that we bear. And in some cases, it seems to be far much more so marred than others, not literally speaking, but by the appearances of how people are. And I don't mean physical appearance, I'm talking about by the behavior and sinful and the, the unbridled wickedness of, of within so many, it would seem. And so the fact of the matter is, though, regardless of how unbridled the wickedness within some may be, we all have stood wicked before God, without exception. And we can't say one was more wicked than the other in terms of our own behavior and nature, and it, but for the grace of God, we will remain in such wickedness and continue to digress and even self-destruct in such wickedness as Romans 1 teaches. And so here, what is being stated to us is that God, as Psalms 8 says, and then the, Hebrew, uh, the writer of Hebrews is, is quoting and referencing, that in light of all of creation and all of God's works and who God is as creator, who is man or what is man that God would be mindful of him, that we would even be considered by God, and the son of man that thou visitest him, being made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor, 
made him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. And then he says, all things have been put in subjection under his feet, which is speaking again of sheep, oxen, beasts of the field, fowl of the air, fish of the sea, everything that passes through the paths of the sea. And he's saying all of this has been put under subjection of the dominion of man as God ordained it to be. And so this is the statements being made. The question posed in this Old Testament reference, however, and this is an important question, what is man, is a question that is literally answered by man's own sinful nature. <laughs> when we stop and ask, what is man, we cannot help but we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We live in these fleshly bodies that are constructed by God in a miraculous way. I mean, think of even how that God has equipped us internally, not only to continue to live, but also to fight off diseases, to recover and heal from, such, from diseases, from sicknesses, all of these things that the body is fearfully and wonderfully made. And it's an amazing thing to consider how complex. And these truths of the complexity of the body in which we live is continuing to be understood and discovered even in the 21st century. And so there are things that are still being learned and understood about the makeup of our very beings. So what is man? Well, we are fearfully and wonderfully made by God in the image of God, though a marred image. But then we consider as we look at mankind himself in light of God and his superiority and his, his majesty and his glory and his righteousness and holiness... And then the question is, what is man? Well, the sinful nature of man is the definition of what man is. And that means that we see in these verses how desperate man truly is due to his own failure to live out the purpose of the Father for which man was created. As we consider the greatness and power of the person of our God, we are confronted with the reality of who and what we are. From the Psalms, we see David speaks of how the Lord has given man dominion over his creation, yet we know from the Scriptures and from experience personally, that man failed in that purpose. And what is our purpose? Our purpose is to glorify God and, and to bring glory and honor to his name, to make his name known and his power known and his name great. And the reality is we have failed in that at some point and in some instances to some degree continue to fail in that as we should. And yet we see from this passage that man has failed in his purpose and we know that to be true following back even to Genesis, because in Genesis 1.26, uh, we read, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So here you have it. God set man over the entirety of his creation, that man is to rule, man is to reign, man is to, to uh, care for, to be a steward over the entirety of the earth, including all created beings, talking about animals and insects and so on and so forth. And all that took place in the Garden of Eden really proves that man has failed, that man does fail, and that man will fail. If man could not maintain his innocence in the Garden of Eden, which he couldn't, then surely he cannot redeem himself from his fallen condition. So this is proving and revealing to us the truth of the necessity of our dependency upon one that is greater than we. One that is greater than you. One that is greater than me. And it's not in angels. The angels were higher or are higher than mankind. But yet, Christ, again, was not manifested as an angel. 
he manifested himself in the flesh as humanity. Not fallen humanity, but humanity all the same. Verse 8. But now we see not yet all things put under him. Now this is talking about man. God gave man dominion over all things. Yet because of man's failure to obey God and his failure to submit to the purposes of God, man failed, and now, though he is given dominion over all things, let me put it to you like this. It kind of makes sense out of this somewhat when we look back to creation. Had Adam and Eve, and I say this hypothetically because obviously Adam and Eve were going to sin. The Christ was slain from the foundation of the world. Man was going to sin, going to fall. But from a hypothetical perspective, had Adam and Eve never sinned, Adam and Eve would not have had to fear any other living creatures. They wouldn't have. Now, we know that while we are superior in mankind, that is, has been made to be superior in, in intellect, in, in, in genius, in, uh, in abilities, in terms of even working together, and in and, and, um, coming together in planning and, and strategy and such. So in many ways, that's the case. We may not be the strongest of all animals that exist, obviously. Animals meaning other created beings other than humanity. But yet, we have been given superiority in having dominion over them. But that does not mean <laughs> that you can go out and wrestle a mountain lion and think you're just going to win because you're man. It doesn't mean that a bear will not shred you and maul you to pieces it does not mean that a shark <laughs> will not eat your limbs off of your very torso so we understand that there are results and consequences of sin in which not right at this moment though we still have dominion in one sense of the word and all things are not necessarily under our power and under our authority in that respect Romans 8, and 23 tells us, Paul wrote, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but also ourselves also, which have the firstfruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. And Paul is writing here that all of creation is under the curse of sin, and that's not creation's fault, that is man's fault. In fact, let me show you the dominion of man to this degree. When man sinned, the entire world was cursed. Even the animals that had committed no sin are now under the curse of sin. All die, all will die, including animals and humanity, and we know that the entire world and creation groaneth in, in, in pain, travaileth because of the curse of sin, which all of creation abides under. So Paul is expressing that even the believer in Romans 8 must live in a sin-cursed world and a sin-cursed body, meaning that we are one in which sin will constantly plague this body in which we live. But we're delivered from the power and dominion of sin, but yet sin still affects us. And one day, however, we will be delivered from this world and having to live under its curse, just like we've been redeemed from our own sin and unbelief. Now, this is very important for us to understand that although man failed in his purpose, which is what's kind of being emphasized here, not all things are presently under man's dominion or feet in a practical sense, but yet ultimately it still is in the, in the regard to the fact that the intelligence of man 
the ability for man to communicate, the ability for man to strategize, the ability for man to still uh, overcome and dominate, if you will, over other created beings and such. But yet, we find that man failed in his purpose, so things are not as they would have been had man not sinned. Yet, God has not and will not fail in his purpose, regardless of man failing to live according to the purpose of God. In verse 9, notice what we read. This brings in now verse 9, which is really the next beginning verse of the next and third division of this chapter. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. Oh, wait a minute. So man was made lower than the angels. Jesus has a name more excellent than the angels. Jesus is superior to the angels, but yet here we're told Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. Made not meaning created, meaning manifested in a physical fleshly body. For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. What is being stated here? Well, man failed, but God has made provision through the Lord Jesus Christ. But we see Jesus. This is really all that matters. We failed in our purpose. We cannot redeem ourselves from our sinful and hopeless condition. But we see Jesus. He came in the flesh, just as we are. He came as one a little lower than the angels, just as mankind was created, for the purpose of suffering and dying a sinner's death, though he were not a sinner. He was crowned with glory and honor, and he did all this that he might taste death for every man. For all of humanity, every tribe, tongue, nation, that the the death of Christ, the offering or sacrifice of Christ, was not limited to the people from which he came, a Jewish nation, but rather to mankind. That all families, as the scripture says in Galatians 3 and Genesis 12, that all nations would be blessed through Abraham. All families of the earth be blessed through Abraham. In Romans chapter 5, I mean Revelation chapter 5, 9, I believe it is, or 9, 5, I can't quite recall. One of those two, if I'm not mistaken. But it states that every Every tongue, tribe, people are gathered around the throne of God. That's the fulfillment of that promise of God. That he would bless all nations, all families of the earth be blessed through Abraham. Not Abraham himself, but through the seed of Abraham, which is Christ. And so just as mankind is lower than the angels, Christ was made a little lower than the angels, manifested in a human body which is lower than that of the angels for the purpose of dying. He was crowned with glory and honor, and he did all this that he might taste death for every man. Lord Jesus Christ became God's sacrifice that he might be our substitute. 2 Corinthians 5.21, you know the verse well. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He humbled himself, Christ did, being God and became man, yet remained God all the while. Philippians 2.5-11, I won't read all these verses, just 5-7, through 7, but you know these verses as well. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, Christ, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. He is the perfect sacrifice. Being God, he never sinned. And through his perfection, we are made complete because he is our substitute. So here you see the dependency of man upon Christ because man failed in his purpose But Christ came as a man, humbled himself, being made lower than the angels, yet exalted above the angels in a glorified body now, having a more excellent name than they, being God in the flesh, the very Son of God in the flesh, who remained faithful to the purpose of the Father while mankind failed in the purpose. 
for which he was created. Colossians 2, 9 through 15. You know these verses as well because we've dealt with this recently. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. So what does it mean to be complete in Christ? We've covered this quite extensively through our Colossians study, but let's briefly look at this again. We could spend our entire life discovering what this means and still never exhaust the truth. However, in Colossians, we are provided some explanation. We have a completed life in Christ. In verse 13, which we just read, Paul wrote, And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, hath he made alive with him, with Christ. The truth is there is no life apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. One may exist, but will never live apart from him, not genuinely live, not spiritually live, not fully live. Remember what Jesus said? I've come that they might, you might have life and they might have it more abundantly. That you might understand the fullness of life, what it is to genuinely live. Ephesians 2, 1 tells us that we've been quickened. Verse 5 as well tells us that we were dead in trespasses and sins, but we've been quickened by the Lord. Number two, we have completed forgiveness in Christ. Verse 13, having forgiven you all trespasses. We are complete in Christ. We are made full in him and that we have fullness of life. We also have fullness of forgiveness. The forgiveness of Christ is a complete forgiveness. Colossians 1.14, Ephesians 1.7 tells us the forgiveness of sins, even the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. The complete forgiveness we experience in Christ is not based on our sin, but rather it is all according to the riches of his grace. In other words, how is it that you can be forgiven? How is it that I can be forgiven? Because the forgiveness of God is not contingent upon our sin. It rests solely in the sufficiency of his sacrifice, of his grace being extended to us. In other words, as the scripture says in Romans, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That is a continual truth that we experience. Because I've said to you often, the only thing that can ever exceed my sin is God's grace in Christ. My sin is great. Your sin is great. My sin was great. My sin continues to be great. Any sin we commit is a great sin, meaning horrible and dreaded, should be dreaded and dreadful. But yet, the only thing that exceeds and supersedes my sin is the very grace of God. Where sin abound or did abound and does abound, grace does much more abound. It is excessively greater than our sin. And also we have complete victory in Christ. Verses 14 and 15 tells us of uh, Colossians there in Colossians chapter uh, 2. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. As I've mentioned before, in the East, uh, a bond was canceled out by being nailed to a post, but also they were, there was a, a, a wax-type tablet or coating that would be on the, the tablet in which there would be uh, a debt that was written out or, or inscribed, and the very utensil or pen or instrument that was used to, to, to 
imprint within the wax had not only a pointed edge, but it also had a flat edge on the other side in which that very thing that had been written could be smeared out. It could be covered over, totally done away with what was no longer even present or readable. It had been wiped away. And that's what's being said here. He blotted out, if you will, the handwriting of ordinances was against us. Everything that was stacked against us, everything that was marked against us, all of our sin, all of our debt, all of our guilt, it's that not only that it's been covered or been hidden away, but it's literally been blotted out. It's been smeared out and smudged out. It's taken away. It's gone. It cannot be retrieved. It cannot be recovered. It's, it's disappeared in that it's been taken away in that regard. It was canceled by being nailed to his cross. We were guilty, yet through his cross he has declared us justified. Therefore, it is through his cross that we have complete victory. For it is through his triumph over all powers, contrary to his preeminent power, that we as well have the victory in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 57 tells us this. Romans 8, 37. 2 Corinthians 2, 14. And 1 John 4, 4. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 37. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. 2 Corinthians 2, 14. Now thanks be to God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ. 1 John 4, 4. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. But we see Jesus. Man failed. Man was given dominion over the creation of God. As David says in Psalms, as the writer of Hebrews references that which David said in the Psalms, we understand that this dominion which man was given, yet we do not presently see all things under dominion of man because of man's sin, and the world itself is now cursed under sin because of man's sin. But that again helps us to see the dominion of man. Man being the pinnacle of God's creative work, when man sinned, everything under man was affected by sin. Everything. So now all that man had dominion over is sin cursed because of man's sin. And so we know that where man failed, Christ is faithful. But we see Jesus. Man failed. Everything is not under his feet as it, as it should be because of man's sin and failure. But we see Jesus. And to see Jesus is to see how desperate we are for him. And what, the question, what is man? What is man that God is mindful of him? What is man that God would visit him? What is man that God would show grace and mercy to him? What is man? Here's what man is. Man is a failure. Man has ultimately failed. But we see Jesus. To simply put it, or to put it in a simple, simple terms or form, let me say it to you like this. Christ including the faithfulness of Christ, is the answer to man and his failure. But we see Jesus. He is the answer. Here man is, here man failed, but we see Christ, who humbled himself even lower than the angels, but now is exalted above all angels, above all beings, above all powers, as a glorified flesh, in a glorified flesh. He's exalted above all others. But we see Jesus. Let's pray. Father,